since you brought up BMI, I think it's important for us to discuss and for the listeners to recognize that BMI is not an accurate marker for health. And I think there are very few people at this point that would debate that. BMI initially, you know, the history of the BMI was based on European white men as part of a population study and was never intended as an individual marker of health. And it doesn't account for things like muscle mass, differences between men and women, race, body fat distribution, all these things. So all these things based on BMI are problematic to begin with. Facts do not have opinions. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Self-love is really about self-respect and acceptance. Welcome to The Whole View, Episode 9. I am so excited this week to welcome Dr. Gregory Dodell, who on Instagram is everything endocrine, but is also a doctor in real life, though this podcast is for general educational purposes and not intended to diagnose, advise, or treat any physical or mental illness. I love the idea that we can finally answer some of the questions that our listeners have been asking for a really long time on talking to and working with providers who are inclusive and focus on health versus weight as a metric. And I could think of nobody better to have on the show to discuss this with than you. So welcome so much to the show, Gregory. Thank you. Thanks for that intro. I'm really happy to be speaking with you today. Yes. And for listeners, if you don't already follow him, you will have fun with his Instagram, but it is full of wonderful content for both clients like ourselves who are going to a doctor, but also for medical professionals, because I know a lot of our listeners are practitioners of some kind or another, and most of our listeners do have autoimmune or other kind of health issues that countless times we're experiencing things with medical professionals that aren't actually driving to the root cause of what a problem is, and so it is something that we often talk about here on the show. But Before we dive into all of that, I do kind of want to introduce you a little bit more because I think I originally found you through your wife, who is on Instagram as the anti-diet plan, when I started fully understanding anti-diet culture and mentality years ago. She is a New York City psychologist and author of the book, The Diet-Free Revolution. And I love that you guys are both medical professionals doing this work because people like me can talk about it all day long, but I can't make a difference in what is happening out there in the world. So I'm glad we're able to talk about that today. I am constantly asked for recommendations of fat-friendly, size-inclusive medical professionals. So I know how rare it is to find someone who is doing the work and is educating and sharing. And I can't thank you enough for putting yourself out there so openly. I know that's probably not easier, easy with your peer group, but I know that doing so will, will help you know, all of our listeners. And we have practitioners. Like I said, we also have fitness experts. I myself was a competitive lifter for a really long time. So I know a lot of people in that arena. And I'm going to just go ahead and jump in and read from your website as a means of introduction. This is from All right, cool. Central Park 
endocrinology.com and we'll of course put links in the show notes but when I was researching and doing a little more work beyond just your fun Instagram because I'm not on TikTok because I'm old your fun Instagram reels (laughs) okay well your your reels are very TikTok-esque right and so I was like well what is this beyond just that I loved reading this on your website which is we are a medical practice with non-judgmental approach that aims to treat the whole person not just the numbers our team focuses on the pillars of health, stress management, nutrition, physical activity, and sleep with the aim of helping you find an ideal life balance. We strive to stay up to date with the most recent clinical treatment guidelines to provide you with the care that you deserve. Our clinicians want to know about your family, work life, and life goals. Why? Because health doesn't happen in a vacuum, and taking care of ourselves is a multifactorial and dynamic process. Our goal is to provide a welcoming and trusting environment for you to address your health care needs. I I could not think of finding a doctor myself. I'm, you know, not local to your area, but that would be able to address something like that. And I know I haven't found one local in my area other than like functional practitioners and that kind of stuff. So um, can you tell us a little more about yourself and your practice and what brought you to that mentality and where you are today? Sure. Absolutely. So I always wanted to be a doctor since I was whatever, call it six or seven. Initially thought I wanted to be a pediatrician because I love working with kids and I was a camp counselor, which was like to me the best thing. And when I got to medical school, I was introduced to endocrinology from a great professor. And I was just very, very interested in the field from a scientific standpoint in that hormones affect everything, you know, every system of the body. And what I realized is if you make a diagnosis, you can really help people, you know, across the board. And and I like working with adults. I changed from the kids because working from with people from like 18 to like 100 or so just felt like it crossed, you know, more of the age spectrum. So I love what I do. And I am fortunate enough to have patients and, and be able to listen to their stories and, and hear what's going on in their life. And, and as the intro said, like, I realized that health is, you know, a lot more than numbers or what's going on in the 15 minutes that someone's in front of me. It's about family. It's about stress. It's about sleep and movement and all these things. And, you know, we're all kind of doing the best we can. And I I think that it really has to be a partnership between the patient and the clinician to reach whatever the goals may be. And, And that's why I take that approach. And, and I guess I have the old school mentality, you know, growing up, I always thought about being kind of a quote unquote, like an old fashioned doctor and like wanting to do house calls and be in private practice and like know everything about the people. Because to me, that's what being a, a doctor is all about. Not just, you know, going through the day and seeing our patients and going home. I I think that's what most patients are looking for. I think it's unfortunate the way that the healthcare world in general has just become so overwhelmed by all of the things that you guys have to manage that I think there's a lot of practitioners who either lose sight of that or can't manage that based on, you know, the workload that they have and different kinds of things. So I love that you've kind of kept that goal for yourself and really let it lead the way to practicing when I say holistically, I mean like with a W in front, right? Like yeah, no, I got <laughs> holistic. I mean, I I think that, and I hope that we all want to practice this way. And I've I've said before, you know, that you can be the best doctor 
ever, you know, the best doctor in the world. But like, if you're in a system that, you know, doesn't give you the time to see the patients and the patients can't have access to the treatments that you think are best for them, or your time is spent with bureaucracy and, and doing other things, even though you're the best doctor in the world and you care so much about your patients is only so good that you can be. And so I think obviously the system is, is partly responsible for, for what we see in healthcare, if not mostly responsible. Because I, I would like to hope that people go into medicine for the reasons that we're talking about. And it's easy to get burnt out, unfortunately, you know, because of what we're, we're all dealing with. And then it becomes kind of a vicious cycle because patients, you know, may be dissatisfied with, you know, their experience in a doctor's office and, and probably rightly so. And then the doctors are frustrated and it just becomes this, you know, phenomenon where people are just unhappy across the spectrum with how they're being cared for. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I know we're going to talk about it a little bit more, but it also resonates with me as you were talking that that also gives you opportunity to continue your education and to continue to read. So I know one of the things that I read on your website is that you try to keep up to date with, you know, the latest research and that kind of stuff. And I know of the shows that I've done before about weight as a metric or health or the, you know, downsides of weight stigma or discrimination, the the kind of negative effects that comes from, for example, a doctor missing a diagnosis because they think, oh, you just need to lose weight or praising someone who's losing weight, not realizing that it's because that there's a health concern and those kinds of things. And I think, you know, it was kind of a light bulb moment for me while you were talking that the, if you're buried in the other things that don't benefit your, not constituents, patients, patients is the word they're looking for, then you are not able to put that time investment back into your practice and those patients, right? Like if, if what you're doing is, is pulling you away from the passionate work that you do that brings stuff to them, then maybe you're missing the, you know, all the studies that have come about in the 2000s that are informing a lot more of, of how you're practicing today. Is that fair, do you think? Totally. I mean, I think that with whatever someone does, whether you're a doctor, a lawyer, accountant, you know, what, educator, whatever it is, if you're burnt out by your day-to-day -day existence, how much interest and passion are you going to be able to put into, you know, quote-unquote, the after hours of going home and and educating yourself and taking classes and reading journals and whatever to make you better, whatever your career may be. I mean, you're just kind of like plugging through the day as best you can and going home and crashing and not wanting to deal with any of it. So, you know, I think that looking at where I've kind of evolved in the last couple of years and taking this weight inclusive approach, it's kind of reignited my passion and my joy for being a clinician because it's a different approach and I'm diving more into the research and things like that because of, you know, being on Instagram and wanting to be up to date with what I'm posting and also just kind of looking for interesting things to talk about. So that's helped me in, in getting that passion back. But I think I'm not unique in that a couple of years ago, I was pretty burned out by medicine and maybe losing the fascination and, and taking care of people. So you know, I think we have to look for ways to kind of reinvent ourselves and make things interesting and 
and also self-care. I mean, a lot of this started and me getting passion back was when I took a mindfulness-based uh, stress reduction course and just getting into mindfulness and meditation and all these things to be present because there's always so many things going on in our life. It's easy to kind of lose focus and enjoy in what we're doing. So um, I think that's helpful. And I know that a lot of institutions, hospitals, businesses are trying to incorporate that into their workforce because it's important. You know, it's hard to be mindful when there's so many things going on. Yeah. So I actually come from the corporate world. I was a government consulting executive for 20 years and had a really stressful job. I negotiated for a living. I essentially was a corporate lawyer, but like working with the government. And it's, it's funny because we would have those kinds of like, you know, insurance companies come in and, and do these. And I'm going to use quotation marks because if they had mindfulness stuff, it was not whatever you did. Right. right it it right. was some sort of like hokey, unrealistic, really short, you know, kind of thing. And then, okay, now go back to your stressful job versus, yeah, exactly. <laughs> not, not even right. Like, yeah. yeah. And I think one of the best things that I ever did for my health was not, losing a hundred pounds, one of the best things that I ever did for myself was leaving that stressful job because my mark, my health markers were much better when I was sleeping better, when I was, do, you know what I mean? Like doing all those kinds of stuff, not having the stress in my life, not burning the candle at both ends and being completely burned out. Like you said, not just from the perspective of where we want to go with our life or what our passions are, but also from a health perspective, I think a lot of the people that I talk to, so for example, I had someone message me a couple of weeks ago who was asking about sparkling water because I love drinking mineral water. I'm like obsessed mm -hmm. with it. And they were like, well, you know, I think that it's causing some autoimmune reactions in me because I haven't changed anything else about the way that I'm eating, but I started, you know, drinking sparkling water and now I have problems. And I was like, well, what else is going on in your life? Is your sleep affected? You know, do you have stress going on? Do you have, you know, listed off a bunch of stuff? And they were like, oh yeah, all that. I, you know, the... I have the, this major stress thing happening in my life. And I was like, well, I think maybe right. we should address that before you start thinking about sparkling water. Not that I'm giving medical advice, but just from my own experience, I think a lot of people jump to, well, it must be this one thing that I can control, right? Like for me, I was trying to manage that with, you know, all of these different things in my life, lifestyle wise, but really it was the one biggest thing in my life that I wasn't really looking at that was truly affecting how I was feeling and the stress in my life, which was affecting my health. Um, and I do, I think myself have countless stories to tell about my own struggle with medical professionals too. I have, I have a great relationship and respect for medical professionals. Don't get me wrong, but I think it's also difficult when you've been obese your whole life. Like I went to fat camp as a teenager. Like I've just been my whole life been overweight. And I think the, it's hard for me to articulate to people how difficult that is and the stigma or association that can come from all different places. But the, the one story that I have that kind of helps people understand really clearly is when I was diagnosed by a PCP as needing to see a specialist because I had been given prescription for vertigo and some other symptoms that I was experiencing, heartbeat and breathing irregularities. I had a lack of energy. Like the doctor was just basically like, I don't know, here's a prescription for vertigo and you need to go see this specialist. And I ended up going to the ER because to get an appointment with a specialist was not something that was going to happen quickly. And my symptoms kept getting worse. 
And so I went in, and meanwhile, I'm thinking the whole time, like, well, I'm clearly unhealthy. I need to do more of my healthy things. I need to work out more. I need to do this. I need to do that, right? <laughs> like, and right. so making it worse for myself, I go into the ER, I get an IV before they run tests. And within an hour, I started feeling better. And it turned oh. out the doctor came in and he was like, oh, you have dehydration. What, what have you been doing? And I was like, well, I've been exercising a lot. I had been doing water aerobics and I didn't realize that the chlorine in the pool was actually dehydrating and drinking any water at all. But my my water, my doctor never once asked me if I was exercising because he assumed that I wasn't right. And so he was going to have me go down this like huge path of, you know, seeing specialists and who knows what else as I was getting worse because he didn't ask some, some basic questions based on some assumptions. And it's not just my experiences. I think, you know, what we see is that the science clearly supports that there are a lot of medical professionals who are not understanding the impacts of those assumptions or biases in their practices. There was a 2008 study that showed overweight people, overweight and obesity were not synonymous with being unhealthy. And as they looked in deeper, found that, you know, 51% of overweight individuals were metabolically healthy and 24% of healthy weight people were metabolically abnormal. So when I think about like how my life has been affected by medical professionals, not either understanding or respecting my needs, but then also the vast majority of their patients that if we're operating on that assumption, aren't getting the proper care that they support. Like clearly the data is showing that this is a myth that needs to be busted. And I, I guess I'm just kind of curious where you are, all things considered, that it's still so rare in the medical field that this is an assumption that is perceived as fact still. Like, I, I guess it goes back to, you know, what was taught early on or just a societal standard. But I'm wondering what you're seeing or hearing among your peers relative to learning some of the updated science on this and bringing it into practice. Right. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's, I think it's both. I mean, it's culture in that a research study that I've seen shows that a high percentage of first year medical students, so not having really any medical training at all at that point, a high percentage, call it 60, 70%, have the belief that people in larger bodies are not going to be as compliant with medication. They're not, they're making all the assumptions that you're talking about. They're not moving. They're not eating, you know, fruits and vegetables, whatever the assumptions are, you know, based on the way someone looks when they walk in an exam room before they even talk to the patient. So that's culture, right? Because they haven't had medical training and then they go through medical training and they are taught that, you know, being in a larger body is unhealthy and therefore you have to counsel everyone in a larger body about, you know, how to change their body and how to lose weight and how to, you know, diet and exercise, you know, for lack of, you know, better terms, which is basically what's what's taught. So I think it's both. And, you know, these research studies, you know, on weight stigma and weight cycling are very, very important. And that obviously has to get into the medical curriculum. But I think you also have to look at research from a very critical lens of what's the difference between correlation and causation. So yes, there may be correlations between body size and certain metabolic conditions, but you have to look 
Did they control for things like socioeconomic status, the huge, huge impact of weight stigma, you know, with regard to the medical system and, and society of being in a larger body, the impact of weight cycling, was that taken into account? Fitness, nutrition, all these things. And a lot of times it's very people are very quick to grab onto a research study that shows weight loss and say, ah, the person lost weight or the subjects lost weight and their blood sugar and blood pressure got better. So therefore, it must be the weight that caused these changes, these improvements. But what are the behaviors that caused not only the change in weight, but the change in blood sugar and blood pressure? Did they start moving more? Did they start meditating? Did they get more sleep? All these things, you know, those are the real behaviors. So I think that's really what has to be looked at and taught. So I think it's it's cultural, and I think it's obviously how, how we're trained. And uh, until, until we look at things like that, I think it's going to go on and on. And there's obviously a huge impact from, from industry. You know, we can't, you know, hide that fact, you know, of what we're marketed towards, all, not only as clinicians, but, but patients as well, you know, advertisements and, and all the stuff in social media about how, how harmful it is to be in a larger body. So it's going to be a lot to change, but I think that hopefully, you know, the discussions are happening and, and we're making some headway. Yeah, those are really good points. Other ones that we've found in studies that represent health in a much better way, right? Because weight is almost like a 50-50 at this point. If you look at BMI, I think it was like 51% of the people who are deemed unhealthy by BMI are actually healthy. So it's actually wrong more often than it's right. But if you look at something like if someone's, you know, a smoker, if someone is sedentary, if, you know, these kinds of things, like if you're asking those lifestyle factors, like you integrate into your practice, and I hope that more doctors do start to do, then we can address, like you said, behaviors that are driving the results that we're seeing, including weight, but so much more than that, that affect health more often. Um, I think what's another statistic that kind of still baffles my mind and surprises people to hear is that the overweight BMI is actually associated with the lowest mortality rate. So that kind of draws into question whether or not we've even kind of identified the 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 goalposts, so to speak, right? Like this, the criteria for health, even in the right place, because I think that a lot of medical professionals would be surprised to hear that, given that, like, if you walk, I, I mean, I hear from people who walk into a doctor's office five pounds outside of the healthy range and are not treated for the symptoms that they've come in, walk out being told just lose weight and you'll be fine. And Meanwhile, they're in the like the lowest mortality rate category, and weight really has nothing to do with a lot of the symptoms they're talking about. So I think that leads me to – sorry, did you have something you wanted to respond? Cause I, yeah, yeah, sorry. No, <laughs> no just, don't be sorry. I just, I just wanted to – since you brought up BMI, I think it's important for us to discuss and for the listeners to recognize that BMI is not an accurate marker for health, and I think – there are very few people at this point that would debate that. BMI initially, you know, the history of the BMI was based on European white men as part of a population study and was never intended as an individual marker of health. And it doesn't account for things like muscle mass, differences between men and women, 
race, body fat distribution, all these things. So all these things based on BMI are problematic to begin with. Yeah, absolutely. I tell people all the time, like the rock is obese by a BMI standard. Like it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense, but it is sad how prevalent it is in our world. Like it's interesting to hear you say, I don't think many people would debate that because meanwhile, like in if you want insurance or whatever right like that's one of the first criteria that they that they look at so it i think i hope that maybe we get to a point in the future where that is weeded out as something that people are looking at for health because if we're looking at you know metabolic markers of health blood pressure blood sugar different things like that like you were measuring like you were mentioning earlier i think we have a different measure than someone looking on a piece of paper and saying oh your bmi is this, you know, like it just, it, it boggles my mind that it's still used that way, knowing what we know about it, but. Right. And of course, you know, I would just say with looking at things like blood pressure and cholesterol, blood sugar, people across the size spectrum have high blood pressure, diabetes, all these things, irrespective of what their BMI is. So, you know, I think that's another thing to obviously consider is that. You know, and that and that goes into like this metabolically healthy, you know, statistic that you're mentioning. Yeah, yeah. So I guess the two biggest questions that I get because I think a lot of our listeners are they're on the up and up, and either they're learning this and they're on this journey, or they're they're there and they're ready to find someone. But I think from a patient's perspective, it's difficult to find a doctor who will focus on those metrics of health and not wait. So do you have recommendations for patients on how they can find someone to work with? I do not know how specifically to find someone, although there is a there's a company that's recently been started called Bear Health, which I think they're going across the country and trying to develop a list and like an online type thing where people could search by zip code. So that's that's up and coming. Fat-friendly docs, I don't know how often that's upgraded. Reagan Chastain, who's awesome, has Hayes Health Sheets. I think there's a list on there. But I would just say, and people ask me all the time, you know, DM me and whatever, is be up front with whoever you're seeing when you walk in the room, you know, you could say right off the bat, hey, I know I'm in a larger body or however you want to phrase it. I prefer to focus on behaviors. Like I'm happy to talk about what I'm doing for movement. I'm happy to talk about sleep and how I can improve on my nutrition and things like that. I do not want to focus on weight. I want to focus on behaviors, number one. Number two, if you don't want to know your weight, you can certainly say, I do not want to be weighed, and if you feel like it's medically necessary to weigh me, I do not want to know the number. Please, you know, hide it from me. And I would hope that most clinicians would respect that. And I know that may be a hard conversation to have, but, you know, I think the more people that start doing that in medical offices, the more common it's going to become, and and that's going to change culture. So true. I actually learned last year, 
thanks TikTok that you can choose to I thought you be. weren't on TikTok. I know, but you know, it eventually makes its way to Instagram for us old oh, people. Okay. So there was a video of like a teenage girl at a doctor's office and she was like, yeah, no thanks. I don't want to be weighed. And like, that was it. And I was like, wait, I could have been doing that my whole life. Like, and I think especially for pregnant women, it can be really triggering to get weighed. And then you have this pull in your mind, right? Where you're trying to nourish a life that you're growing inside of you while also meeting societal unrealistic expectations and standards of not gaining any weight. And, you know, I I think that there's a lot of places where it makes sense to just be like, nope, that's not something I'm going to focus on right now. So I love that you brought that up. Today's podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox, which is perfect timing because this free grilling bundle they're offering is so good. We have been spring cleaning and our freezer needs an overhaul too. We love to use ButcherBox for quality meats and since we can customize our boxes, it's time to update to our favorite grill cuts. I'm not a planner. With ADD, I'm lucky to remember to make dinner before Stacy reminds me. I love the convenience of heading to my freezer and having ButcherBox protein waiting for me versus running to the store. All we need is a bag salad or some veggies and meals come together so quickly. Plus, we love that ButcherBox uses humane and sustainably raised meat shipped for free, frozen right to your door in an eco-friendly, 100% recyclable box. I love supporting B Corps, and they are. You can adjust the delivery frequency both up and down as needed, always with free shipping. Pause when you're away or change it as you need, and when it arrives, it's like a magical present. We get a science experiment out of it, too, because we love playing with the dry ice. ButcherBox sources meat and seafood from partners with the highest standards. You can be assured the beef is grass-fed and finished, chicken is free-range organic, and seafood is wild-caught. No antibiotics or added hormones. They're focused on quality, both for you, the animal, and the planet. Kick off grilling season right with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com wholeview to receive a free grilling bundle in your first order. You'll get two 10-ounce ribeyes, five pounds of chicken drumsticks, and a pack of burgers for free. Some of our family's absolute favorites. That's butcherbox.com slash whole view to claim this deal. Y'all, stop what you are doing right now and take advantage of the once a year friends and family site-wide sale at Beauty Counter through May 24th, 2022. This buy more, save more event is on everything. No code needed. The entire site is 15% off. And if you spend $250, then you'll get 20% off. And if you're a Bandit Beauty member, including if you simply add it to your cart with your order, you'll get 25% off and 10% back and free shipping. That's 35% savings site-wide. They have never had an offer this good before. I love that Beauty Counter is an inclusive brand fighting for health protective laws for all to get safer products into the hands of everyone. Your purchase supports those efforts and my small woman-owned business when you shop beautycounter.com slash Stacey Toth. And when you choose Stacey Toth at checkout, you also get the choice of two charities. I am donating half of my commission this month. Your choice of ACLU or UMFS, my foster agency that helps at-risk youth. And you can feel good knowing that Beauty Counter tests every single batch against 23 different human health endpoints to ensure performance and safety. No contaminants, carcinogens, or unsafe heavy metals. 
no benzene and sunscreen, no PFAS and makeup, only nourishing skin superfoods to help you love the skin you're in. And it's a certified B Corp, ensuring transparency for doing good by people and the planet. I know abandoning products you've used for years can be scary and switching to safer can be expensive. Let me take the fear out and help you. If you need help, email me, stacy at realeverything.com. But their 60-day no-questions-asked return policy, what do you have to lose? Shop beautycounter.com slash Toth, just like any other website. I'm curious from a health practitioner standpoint, the other popular question that I get is ways in which people can integrate this into their practice because it is so ingrained in culture from a societal perspective, from the education that they took, what to look for for their patients to optimize health. And I'll add, and I know you've mentioned it a couple of times too, how to change behavior that they've integrated either because of um, the education or whatever it might be that is causing weight stigma because the the research is overwhelming in how negative that is. And I know most practitioners don't want to be causing harm. So do you have any ideas or recommendations or resources there? Yeah, no, that's a really important question. I think a lot of it's going to come hopefully from education over time. And I think that, and I know people are talking about the detriments of weight stigma. I think the differing opinions are like, what do you do about it? You know, do you use person first language and all this, which, you know, I don't know how helpful that is, or do you just take it out of the equation and and focus on the behaviors like we're talking about and recognize that weight may go up, it may go down, or it may stay the same as the result of behaviors. And that's fine. And that's just an outcome, just like blood pressure and blood sugar and all those things. I think that for clinicians to ask themselves how how important is it that I know this person's weight? Is it going to change my management whatsoever? And is it creating more harm than good in focusing on it? So, for example, if I see someone with type 2 diabetes, am I going to change the medications I give them? Am I going to change the discussion I have with them? based solely on their weight, or am I going to prescribe, quote unquote, prescribe the same thing no matter what? And for me, the medications are the same. I'm going to recommend that people with diabetes move their body, they focus on their stress, they get adequate sleep, and they pair fruits and vegetables and fiber and fats and protein with carbohydrates. So if I'm totally blinded to someone's weight, it doesn't matter because it's going to be the same recommendation and I'm going to go by their blood tests and whatever and make the same recommendations. But if I take that same patient and I say, oh, well, if you lost weight and this and that, you know, that that may have harmful effects for them because they may start restricting their food. And therefore, you know, at some point, most likely having a binge cycle or weight cycling occur, which is worse for them. They may not want to come back to see me, you know, which certainly is not a good outcome. So I I think taking a look at the possibility that you don't have to focus on that, just like we could say, like you were like surprised that someone declined to be weighed. You know, I just think we're so stuck in like, oh, we got to focus on the weight. You know, that's what we're taught. I think looking at it and being objective may change, change things for someone as a clinician. Yeah, really great ideas. And I think hopefully that's helpful for people, although it seems intuitive, but it's almost like 
it's 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 almost like so simple that it's feels out of reach like what do you mean we we just focus on the you know the actual health markers and the solutions and hope that if someone is doing those behaviors that it affects their health in a positive way whether that's by weight or not and i think that's the conclusion that you know i had to come to years ago which is that you know my obsession with health with i associate it with orthorexia at this point like i became so obsessed with health that i was doing things that were detrimental to my health i was losing my hair i was you know like all these kinds of things because i was intermittent fasting for so long that really what I was doing was not eating in order to maintain an, a weight loss that was unrealistic for me, like different kinds of things like that, that right. I look back on now, but all I was getting was praise, right? Like it was like, but you, you've lost weight and that's great. Instead of like, Hey, your digestion's out of whack. You're not absorbing nutrients. Your hair's falling out. Like these aren't good symptoms. These aren't good signs for your right. health long term. you know? So yeah, there's research. There's sorry. There's yeah. research. Um, there's a lot of papers that are coming out, but there's one that I like to talk about by Gazer at all. And they looked at hundreds of studies to show that independent of any change in weight, just increasing activity and, and physical fitness has a tremendous outcome beneficial on cardiometabolic health. You know, there's lots of studies that show things like that. So I think, you know, if someone's interested, they dive into the research and they can find a lot of papers that show independent of weight, just doing these behaviors can have a huge impact. Yeah, absolutely. I know you mentioned a few resources, one of which I found the doctor that I'm working with now from Fat Friendly Docs, but like you said, it's not super comprehensive and there's a lot of locations and a lot of different types of doctors that aren't listed there. I'm wondering if, especially with the pandemic, so much being done virtually, do you or other doctors that you're aware of now work with patients remotely so that someone could find a doctor who's maybe not local to them, but has the the background and the approach that they're looking for and work with them remotely? Yeah, I mean, the, the limitation is the medical licensing because you have to be licensed in the state mm. where the patient is. That may change. And that was all waived, you know, a lot of it during COVID. Some states have continued to waive it. So I was doing probably more telemedicine you know, before than I am now because people are coming into the office and things like that. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's going to be certainly where a lot of this potentially goes and that and that's great. And that's going to be a good option, which I think there are probably telehealth companies that are going to come up that's really specialized in that kind of care. Well, Dr. Gregory, thank you so much for joining us today. And I want to remind our listeners that they can find you at everything underscore endocrine on IG or Dodell, that's D-O-D-E-L-L-M-D on Twitter, and your website, centralparkendocrinology.com. I also recommend that they follow your wife, Alexis, at The Anti-Diet Plan. And if you enjoyed this conversation and you want to hear more, you can pop over to patreon.com slash the whole view. That's the best place to ask questions. We'll be sharing what we really thought over there. And if you love the show that we create and produce ourselves. The Patreon is a great way to support the show. And so is leaving a review and hitting that follow or subscribe button in the podcast app you're using so that others can find us as well. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again next week.
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.